I'm Diana Penuncial, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and you're listening to Call Number with American Libraries. As any library staffer who has gone through a building renovation knows, there is significant behind-the-scenes work that goes into updating or overhauling a facility. From working with architects, to communicating with committees, to soliciting community feedback, rethinking a library is rarely a process that happens overnight. This episode, we focus on library design and architecture. We cover topics that coincide with our library design showcase, the cover story of our September-October issue, now online at AmericanLibraries.org. First, I speak with Michael Haddock, Associate Dean for Research, Education, and Engagement at Kansas State University Libraries in Manhattan. We talk about the fire that damaged Hale Library in 2018, the flagship library of K-State, and how staffers have rallied around a rebuild. Then, former Associate Editor Sally Ann Price speaks with Amelia Anderson, Assistant Professor at Darden College of Education and Professional Studies at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, and Abigail Phillips, Assistant Professor at the School of Information Studies at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. They discuss how to create public library makerspaces that are accessible for all. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. Is your library in need of space, but you don't know if a renovation, addition, or new construction is right for your needs? Use our library assessment tool to help direct your construction process. Tape Architects has designed libraries of all sizes, ranging from new construction to historic renovations and additions. Go to tape.com podcast to get your library building assessment tool. Tape Architects, enhancing communities through library design. In May 2018, a roof fire broke out at Hale Library, the flagship library of K-State. After years of repairs and renovations, the building reopened in spring 2021. I speak with Michael Haddock, who worked closely with the architects during the rebuilding process. So the first question is, what was the process of rebuilding the library? Well, I would say it was a massive undertaking. after the fire, the fire itself didn't burn a, a very large area on the fourth floor roof, um, but the building, the damage was from smoke. Um, the firemen, after that, later they told us when they came in, um, they could not see their hand in front of their face. There was so much smoke throughout the lower floors of the building, and then. We'll never probably have an accurate estimate. We've heard anything from 200,000 to 400,000 gallons of water went in over a four-hour period, both from sprinklers and fire hoses. Um, So basically, the entire building, um, well, other than the fifth floor, because the fire was on the roof of the fourth floor, but the rest of the building was severely damaged. So initially, all contents had to be taken out. Um, Ceiling grids were removed. Carpet was removed. Um, At one point, there were 180 workers in here doing that. Um, Because the fire knocked um, basically all electricity, all wiring, um, 
got wet. There was no HVAC, no climate control, so it got very hot and humid. Um, so they had to gut parts of the structure down clear to the metal studs. Um, and then later, every area of the library got um, deep cleaned with things like chemical sponges um, because of the smoke contamination. Just as some background, Hale Library is actually four different buildings. Um, the original is 1927. Uh, there was a 1955 Stacks sort of tower, a 1970s edition, 1970, and then a 1996 edition. Um, so that also played a role in trying to get it reconstructed because there were different parts of the library. Um, reconstruction, actually, the fire was... Um, May 22nd, 2018, um, reconstruction started in the December 2018 timeframe. Prior to that, it was mostly the removal, cleaning, and everything of the building. And the reconstruction was completed in stages. We actually were able to open the first floor August of um, 2019. Luckily, our Construction was allowed to continue during the pandemic, even though the university was completely shut down. So that did, that was good. Um, reconstruction itself finished in the spring of 2021. Um, and then just this past winter, uh, over winter break of 2021-22, um, as we finally got all the new furniture brought in. So it was a, it's been a long process. Sounds like you've gone through quite a journey with everything. Uh, what was the process of recovering the books? Of the books, that one and a half million, about 45,000 actually got wet. So we were lucky not more did. We immediately, which you do with um, wet books, we had them frozen. When the fire occurred was right after school had gotten out for the spring semester. So the housing and dining, their giant free freezers were pretty empty, so we were able to box them, put them there, freeze them. And the Belfort company then transported them in refrigerator trucks to Fort Worth, Texas, where they wow. have special chambers where they lower the temperature even further through sublimation. It, it basically dries the books, takes the moisture out. And then they had to gamma radiate the books to kill mold spores. Wow. And I think um, of that 45,000 Somewhere between five to seven thousand. After that process, we were like, nobody's ever going to want to touch this. But the rest of them, we were able to recover. So, and it, it's pro does it, it probably feels like nothing ever happened to the book. Yeah, you can. The ones that went through the cleaning process, you can you can sniff them, and you cannot smell any smoke. So that's wow. good. Um, <laughs> it just the whole process was sort of well, the whole fire was just surreal to have to go through, but. It is what it is. So, What kind of uh, new features or additions were you able to implement in rebuilding the library? Yeah. Um, well, it gave us – I would not wish this on anyone, anyone to go through this, but okay. the silver lining, it enabled us to have a completely renovated library, um, which we might not have for many, many years. Um, but some of the things that we were able to do that, that – Afterward, the new library now um, is much more open, much brighter because we replaced all the fluorescent lighting with the LED type of lighting. Um, the paint schemes were changed by the architects. Um, 
we have because we had to basically we had to get rid of all the furniture we had to get rid um of all the bookshelves themselves the, they we had white metal bookshelves and the smoke actually fused with the white metal and turned it brown we sent some some of the shells a few samples to the library of congress their chemistry lab and they did some testing um, and said we did find chemicals that you can clean these but it'll cost you way more to do that and just get rid of them and get new shelving um, so we did that with the furniture like probably libraries that are a few decades old we had a lot of they were very nice but old older wooden tables that would seat six people or eight people and what we'd seen before the fire is students tended to only one person sit at the table unless they were actually in a group um, so when we got new furniture we got a lots of different kinds and a lot of it is solitary individual seating um, and seems to be really popular with our students um, we were because all that wiring and electrical breaker boxes everything had to be replaced we um, we have a better electricity particularly in the 1927 part um, mm -hmm. new Wi-Fi throughout the entire building we were able to install a new elevator public elevator um, of that one and a half million volumes because we went through this process we had an opportunity we have a, a remote storage facility we called the annex out by the airport it's actually right across the field from <laughs> where the all the cleaning happened um, so we only brought back about 900,000 volumes into the library and the arrest went into the annex because it has a capacity of about 1.1 million and it only had about 400,000 volumes stored there at the time of the fire so we we move lesser used items there and we have a daily retrieval service if somebody needs something from there but that made it possible to open up the building more for more seating more different ways to do the furniture um, and then <clears throat> we we knocked out it was a strange building before the fire because we had an entrance on the first floor but you actually had to walk in a door and go up to the second floor to walk into the building mm -hmm. and then we had a second entrance on a ramp loggia ramp that was actually a, a way that came directly into the second floor so after the fire um, we were able to knock out a wall um, on that first floor entrance so people could walk directly into the library from the first floor and that made the entire campus and all of us very happy you mentioned uh, changing up the seats a little bit for the students to give them more options. Um, what other sorts of things did you do with the students in mind? We were able to add a second event space that seats 145. Um, the Friends of the K-State Libraries donated um, to an instruction space that seats 60. And then we have a couple seminar rooms that we were able to put in. And we have an area called the Resource Link uh, which is sort of a central location where campus partners can come and meet with students like the writing center and we call it powercat financial or peer tutoring and um, so those were added but in addition to all those we also had other donor funding after the fire besides insurance monies and the 
we've put in the Everett Learning Commons, which has 17 collaboration rooms, um, and they range from four seats to 25 seats. They have their walls are all whiteboards. They have monitors students can plug their laptops into. That's probably the most popular thing that we did after the fire. They're they're constantly reserved. They're reservable um, online. I would say we're not seeing the same pre-fire gate counts that we had, but we think a fair amount of that is due because the last year we've still been in, sort of operating in pandemic conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, some of our students were never in the library for three years, so some of them maybe are not as familiar with the library as they were um, before the fire. I'd say one other thing that we did notice that with hindsight is we we had an info commons before the fire. We put it back on the second floor and then added a par- 24 terminals on the fourth floor, like 125 computer workstations. Mm-hmm. But other than midterms and finals, they're never very busy. Um, and so four or five years ago, I think times have changed and the number of people bringing in mobile devices. Um, with hindsight, we probably only need about half the number of workstations. But... Um, something we learned from the process. And uh, building off of that, what are some things that you learned from the entire rebuilding process? Um, well, I would say definitely, I, don't, I think no matter what size your library is, you need to have a disaster plan in place. We did have a pretty good disaster plan um, pre-fire, but I would say it was very focused on... Um, Um, materials and not necessarily on people. You really need to be doing both. Um, But part of that plan, um, we had prearranged with two companies, and one was this company, International Restoration Company, Belfour, um, that all the paperwork and everything was signed. And so when the disaster hit, um, all we had to do was get permission from the university administration to pull the trigger and bring them in. They were here 48 hours after the fire occurred. Um, actually, no one could go in the building for the first 48 hours because um, they were doing, and we had local, state, and federal ATF were here doing inspections and mm-hmm. to determine the cause, which was an accident um, from roofing work on the roof. Um, but they also didn't let people in because their carbon monoxide detectors kept going off. But once those 48 hours were over, um, the Belfour company went in and started working. Um, some things we learned, um, and I know a lot of times they say there's a fire, just get out of the building as fast as you can. But one thing we learned um, staff-wise, we'd had a, a number of not necessarily drills, but fire alarms go off over the previous few years before the fire, mainly from things like a burnt bagel in the cafe, or they were very, very minor, um, and sometimes they were just false alarms. But we were used to just getting out when the alarm went off, but what we found in this case, because no one could get back in for 48 hours, a lot of people, a fair number, left their personal belongings their purses, their car keys, um, things like that in the building. 
Um, so immediately after the fire, we were having to ferry people home. They couldn't get in their cars. There were things. So it is probably good to try to grab your personal items mm-hmm. when the alarm goes off. Um, I'd say that's another thing that we learned from the process. You're ready to begin your library building project, but how do you make sure it will meet the needs of your community? Our experienced staff at Tape Architects have developed a tried and true community engagement process for library building projects. Library Design Director Jeff Hoover has presented his approach at the World Library and Information Congress and other industry gatherings. Go to tape.com podcast to learn how to effectively get input from your community. Tape Architects, creating libraries that engage. How do we adapt our library makerspaces to be more accessible? Sally Ann Price speaks with Amelia Anderson, who along with Professor Abigail Phillips, earned a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to explore this topic. Now, can you tell me about the grant you got from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to explore how accessible library makerspaces are? What drove you to investigate this particular issue and why makerspaces? Hi, this is Amelia Anderson. What drove us to explore this area? So Abby and I are both former public librarians, and so we have a lot of experience in that area. Um, and We both collaborated before on uh, various other projects. And so for us, we saw makerspaces as a big trend in public libraries. And it's a trend that is no longer like a unique thing, right? Like public libraries have makerspaces. So it was something that we thought that we, you know, would want to look into a little bit more in terms of accessibility because both of us also have experience and um, a background in disability and accessibility um, in our research. So that was something that we thought um, we wanted to explore a little bit more because we just kind of anecdotally have not seen a lot out there about um, accessible makerspaces. And so we thought maybe we should be the ones to to look a little bit deeper. In general, uh, from what you found, how accessible are makerspaces for patrons with a variety of disabilities? And the sub-question was kind of, what are some common barriers to accessibility you found or uh, interesting examples you encountered? Yeah, so it's hard to to answer the question, how accessible are they? Because it really differs person by person. And that's something that we really learned um, during our interviews. And um, so we did interviews, we did focus groups, and we also collected survey data. And I'll just say quickly that, you know, that was a really important part of the research is that we wanted people to be able to participate in the way they could best communicate and that they felt most comfortable um, sharing their answers. So we, we had a variety of ways that they could, they could share. There's not really one, I guess, answer to how accessible are they because every makerspace is different. Um, and we did hear kind of from a, a broad range of, of librarians, of patrons. So, so yeah, I think in general, Patients with disabilities are using makerspaces. We heard from them. They're enjoying their experiences. There's a lot of opportunity for learning and growth and inclusive, you know, building communities uh, and inclusive spaces. But there are definitely still barriers. And those barriers, again, really range based on um, individual person and, you know, characteristics of their disability and how those characteristics manifest for them. A lot of, you know, physical space issues that we heard about, 
people with limited mobility, you know, just having, you know, wide enough spaces for them to be able to move around. Um, a lot of comments about materials being up high and heavy and hard to, to pull them down and reach them. Also things about the sensory environment, like in terms of noises and lights um, and smells, um, some materials used in maker spaces can be really pungent. I guess the, it kind of boils down to the idea of creating a, the most accessible space kind of according to universal design, right, um, that you can, but also knowing that, um, that you'll still need to make accommodations person by person um, and making sure that those accommodations are, that patrons know that they can ask for those accommodations and that they feel comfortable asking for those accommodations when they need them. And we also had, we had, um, I was talking with somebody earlier about this and they, I think this highlights a, a strong point among a lot of librarians is that they think of the more common disabilities and there's so, there's such a range of disabilities out there that we need really, with the universal design that really brings out the point that maybe smells or sights or, um, just a sensory environment that people might not think of. I think that's important to consider and universal design brings a lot of that into play. What steps uh, or recommendations do you guys have for what steps libraries can take to sort of increase accessibility in maker spaces and especially maybe what are some, uh, some changes or even some kind of like ways to readjust your mindset um, that might not take a huge investment of resources? Amelia, again, I think the, the first thing that I think of here is librarians think of ourselves as being like very welcoming people, and we are, but um, but how do we make sure our patrons know that too? And so kind of back to the idea of asking for accommodations, how do patrons know that they can ask for help? And so I think having signage is a really, really important first step. Just saying, you know, if you need additional help, please ask, and having that information uh, in multiple places. Um, I think especially having it online. Um, a lot of patrons um, with disabilities that we heard from want to feel like prepared for their visit. They want to feel like they know what they're going in for or into, I guess. And so if they can learn online about the space as much as they can um, before they're there, I think they'll feel more comfortable. And so if you can have that information online that, that um, not only is it a welcoming space, but you can ask for additional help. Along with that, making sure that staff is willing to help, <laughs> you know, making sure that um, you have more than just one trained staff member that, you know, knows the equipment and is willing to help and, and assist. Um, there's a lot of turnover in libraries, you know, even with scheduling shifts, you know, the same person isn't going to be there every day for every shift. And so to make sure that you have that staff um, on site that, that is willing and able to assist and making sure that patrons know um, that they can ask for that help. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a more cost effective way of, of looking at this. There's also, of course, you know, investing in adjustable height furniture. I think one thing to think about is it's a lot more affordable and cost effective to build your space to be accessible from the beginning rather than having to go back and make changes at the end. So if you build it with that in mind, you won't have those big cost items later. Just use your initial budget thinking about accessibility 
um, going into it. And some libraries, of course, don't have that luxury. They've already built their space. <laughs> but for those that are, are thinking about, you know, how to, to create a makerspace, to um, think about those kind of um, considerations. Something you wrote in your recent American Libraries column on this topic was that because makerspaces are a relatively recent phenomenon in public libraries, they are often located like kind of in the back or in an out of the way retrofitted space uh, that wasn't intended to be what it what it ultimately has become. Yeah. Uh, so of course, we see signage and uh, wayfinding are so important that way. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that we heard quite a bit is that, you know, you can make the most accessible space that you want, but if the building itself is, is inaccessible, then, um, you know, that's a, that's a concern itself. Even, you know, we heard parking lots could be, you know, a challenge. Um, so that's, you know, an even bigger issue, an even bigger project than addressing the makerspace itself is, is looking at library um, buildings themselves as well. Is there anything else unusual or unexpected or surprising that you encountered in your research? I think not not surprising, but just kind of like important to, to note is that we asked patrons what their favorite activities were in makerspaces, and they were all so different. <laughs> like there were so many different answers. And so I think it was just a really nice reminder. And it wild that you'd even have to be reminded of this because of course but um, a nice reminder that it's so important to not have like one you know disability makerspace activity right because it, it's not going to fit every person's interest people with disabilities are just they're like every other person and they all have different interests and different abilities and needs and you know so I think um, instead of, of thinking about creating like a disability friendly program or something like that, it's so important to make sure you have that access built into to every program and to every um, service within the makerspace um, and to just be constantly thinking about your patrons with disabilities and how they might um, access those things. Like we heard from one person who said she really enjoyed doing um, pottery because of the, the tactile aspect of it, I believe she had low vision. And so for her being able to feel that was really important. And then we also heard from other people who really liked like virtual reality things. So really just very broad. And yeah, so I thought that was a really kind of interesting and, and helpful reminder. While you say that, I'm reminded of, I think I read something at one point that makerspaces tend to be uh, the place at the library where a patron is most likely to get hurt or where yeah. is most likely to get hurt uh, just because it is one of the more physical, uh, yeah. active and, in, you know, kind of high engagement and high interaction spaces in the library, which means that disabilities that affect how you interact with your physical physical space have, you know, are that much more important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My last question for you guys is um, just sort of in general, what do we lose when these spaces in our libraries are not accessible to all? And why is it important to make sure that makerspaces and public libraries are broadly accessible to people with disabilities? Well, one of the things we heard again and again was the importance of um, inclusion. And, and kind of back to the, the last comment I made about you know, making sure that all of your programs and services are, uh, are accessible. It's so, so important to treat your patrons with disabilities like any other patron and to include them in the, you know, in the events, um, events and services that you provide. So it, it's really community building, providing them that opportunity to, to be a part of their community like any other patron. And by, by you know, 
not creating barriers, but I guess by not addressing barriers. Because a lot of times it's not that we are consciously creating barriers, it's more that we're not consciously addressing them um, and fixing them. Um, but by not consciously addressing those barriers, that's you know a big chunk of our population um, who's, who's unable to participate. And it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate for them. And it's also unfortunate for um, able-bodied patrons who, um, who also wouldn't have that connection um, and, and that, that opportunity. So, you know, we, we learned so much in our interviews and um, surveys about just like the, again, multiple patrons said that they felt socially isolated because of their disabilities. And so this is just a really wonderful opportunity for them to, to learn and grow in a, a kind of non-threatening, non-intimidating, they're not being graded on what they do, environment with other members of the community. I think we we lose a bit of community because when patron, if we lose these patrons, I mean, I think if we don't provide a community in the library, we lose these patrons, maybe maybe permanently. And I read recently, there's some very recent research that's come out about makerspaces in underserved populations, and they come into the library and they already feel othered. They feel like they're unwelcomed and not wanted there. And I think that speaks to our research as well, that patrons come in who are living with a disability and they feel because the makerspace isn't set up for them or isn't welcoming or isn't inviting or inclusive for them, they feel like nobody wants them there. What will your next library look like? How will it meet the needs of modern learning styles and adapt for the future? Tape Architects has designed stunning, sustainable libraries that work, ranging from an AIA slash ALA Library Building Award winning library to lead platinum historic restorations. Get inspiration for your next library building project from our project gallery at tape.com slash podcast. Tape Architects, designing places that inspire. Next episode, prepare to be scared. Halloween is almost upon us, and we'll be talking about all types of horror media. Let us know what movie, horror or non-horror, spooked you as a little kid and why. Email your answer to callnumber at ala.org or leave us a voicemail at 312-280-4218, and your submission can be featured in our next episode. Is there a story or topic you'd like us to cover? Let us know. We welcome feedback and hope to hear from you soon. Thanks for listening.